This podcast was produced on the land of the Darug people. We acknowledge their traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to owners past, present and emerging. Welcome to The Road to Find Out, a University of Sydney podcast run by students for students, where we chat to some of the most wonderful academics in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. My name's Harry Peters, and I'm hosting today's episode, where we talk to Rick Benitez, a professor of philosophy who has just retired after 30 years at Sydney. Rick specialises in ancient Greek philosophy, and particularly Plato. So after chatting about his remarkable tenure at UCID, we're going to be talking about his paper, Cultivation and Harmony, Plato and Confucius, which discusses the surprisingly similar ways in which these philosophers think about harmony and how a musical education can bring about harmony in the real world. Good morning, Rick. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Harry. Thanks for having me here. So, Rick, you are originally from America, but 30 years ago, you decided to move halfway across the entire world and take a job as a lecturer in philosophy in Sydney, Australia. So I'm curious, what reasons did you have for making that change? Because it is such a seismic shift in your life. Uh, Could you walk us through uh, your motivations for coming to Sydney all those years ago? Well, I was a lot younger then, Harry, and I was looking for adventure, had a sense of adventure. And um, I always thought I'd love to go to Australia. Um, I knew a little bit about Australia, um, Sydney University. Um, as a grad student, I'd been taught by um, a visiting lecturer from Sydney University uh, who was named David Armstrong. He was one of the great Australian philosophers. So I knew a little bit about the department. I knew they actually had two departments of philosophy. Um, and I knew that both of those departments were great departments. So, um, but I always thought I'd love to come to Australia. Uh, when I was about five or six, my great grandmother gave me a world atlas. I still have it. Um, and I was really, really into geography. And I was thinking about places I'd like to live when I grew up. And I looked for places with the best climate in the world. <laughs> and Sydney just about had it. I mean, it was just perfect like it was in Fahrenheit it was about 70 to 75 degrees every day clear blue skies for three quarters of a year how can you beat that so yeah you know probably better than Jersey Washington I guess oh yeah and it's so Washington is a swamp Uh, it was built on a swamp and it's so humid in the summertime and mosquitoes and everything so it's it's terrible and cold in the winter so uh, yeah, Sydney was just fantastic. So it was, it was a great opportunity. Um, I think what a really funny thing was I, I had uh, my interview, the, the head of department of Sydney University was um, at that time a visitor at the University of Maryland in College Park near where I was living. And so I had my interview there. They didn't bring me all the way out to Sydney um, for the interview. And it was right during that time of spring in America where the uh, cherry blossoms are out in all over Washington, DC. And there were, I parked under a cherry tree and there were blossoms all over my car when, when I came out of the interview, I thought it was a good sign. Um, and, and the interview was, went so well. Um, I just, uh, it was one of the first times in my life that I just thought, um, I, I'm not gonna, I won't be nervous about anything. I'm just gonna go for it. 
and you know it was great so um so i came to sydney and the rest is history was there any culture shock when you came to sydney i imagine yeah as you said it's a bit of a change from washington yeah it it was um you know the washington is in the from from boston to washington is one big urban eastern corridor in the united states and it's very corporate uh people like what for teaching i used to wear a suit okay uh tie white shirt blue blue blazer right? so it was like that was the environment you know and i i remember one of my first classes in sydney big uh first year uh lecture in carlo uh lecture theater and it was a very big uh, first year lecture and um i remember uh, a young couple coming into the lecture theater about 15 minutes after the lecture had started barefoot both of them barefoot and you could smell the um what do you call it like suntan oil you know that hawaiian smell of that from uh coconut yeah, all of yeah. that so they had just come from the beach and they had their dog their little dog with them too they came into the lecture theater and i was used to, you know i think it might have still been wearing a suit at that time um, so that was just one example of the kind of change of culture shock. It was much more like a California vibe than um, a Northeast uh, DC, New York kind of vibe. Yeah. So that was big. And, and you know, we spoke the same language, but there was just this tiny little difference in everything that made it feel like, um, like just something wasn't right all the time. <laughs> It took, it took forever to get over that. Right, yeah. right. Great. Now, you spent 30 years working at Sydney University. What was your time like here? Did you enjoy those years of your life? Yeah, Harry, I loved it. I think, you know, um, uh, the academic world is a pretty mobile world and people, um, if they don't like where they are, they find a way to move out. It may take a few years, but they sort of figure out where they want to go and they target that. Um, I absolutely loved it. It provided me with a home, with a good salary, an opportunity to develop. I think my conditions, at least at the start, um, in terms of the teaching conditions and, um, and research conditions were really good. Um, had ample time, every, like every three years, we got a special studies program leave for a semester almost automatically. Um, the teaching load wasn't really heavy. It was uh, sort of two courses a semester. There was a lot of time in the classroom because when I first started, we had evening classes. We would do these repeats in the evening, but I loved it. I loved coming out of the quad um, in that twilight and you know seeing a crescent moon in the sky and things like that, you know? I, I loved that. Um, so it was delightful. I had a great department. Colleagues were really good to me. So. Um, that and and the cred that that built up for the University of Sydney lasted a very very long time, you know. I you know in a, in one sense the only downside of it was that I fell in love with the university so much that I invested in it uh, sort of um, emotionally, right? And so a lot of people nowadays sort of think, well, the university is now a very corporate sector, a corporate environment. And if you're too attached to it, um, you'll get bothered by things that happen, you, you know? Um, uh, so 
there's there's that like I can't just let the water roll off a duck's back um, when there's big changes that come at university. I get personally involved in it. So what were some of those big changes that seemed to bother you? Uh, well, one was a curriculum change um, fairly recently. It's old enough now that I think you and Carla and most anybody that hears your podcast um, were, are already under the you know, so-called new curriculum, but it's about five years old or so now. But it was a massive curriculum change. And some of the things that have happened as a result of that curriculum change mean that students doing a, a philosophy major, or you may have noticed this in some of the, your other majors, um, actually do less philosophy than they used to do. And they used to do, um, you know, sort of sometimes six philosophy units in their third year. And you don't do that anymore. Right? You do um, three. Yeah. yeah. So, and in terms of what that means for the actual preparation for honors, postgraduate work, it's really hard for us to get people up to the scale, I think, that we used to be able to do in honors year. I used to think that um, the Sydney honors degree put an undergraduate in a position that made them ahead of most North American universities going into a postgraduate degree. It was like they already had a master's degree under their belt, okay? Um, and I think that's no longer the case. I think it's really now much more like a four-year BA. Um, so the, and that was a big change. And I was chair of department when that change came through. And I, and I, took, it, I took it really seriously. I did a lot of research on philosophy departments all around the world, especially in the top five. You have Oxford, Cambridge, Princeton, Harvard, MIT. Um, and, and what their curriculum is like. And I, I took the curriculum change seriously, but I felt like it was a total top-down driven agenda. So that chairs of department had basically zero input and um, zero uh, effect in guiding that curriculum change. And that was really hard because I thought this is the university I love. I want to see the best results for it, you know. Fortunately, we've come through very well. Um, the, the philosophy department has thrived um, even within the curriculum change. But um, th those are the kind of things you can, get, you can get emotionally involved in and then it's hard, right? And I think you should have a little bit more distance. We've At the other extreme though, <laughs> so let me just give you an example of the other extreme. So in, in the 1990s, we had lots of people who were career tertiary educationalists students right and and the limit on even like your undergraduate degree there were there were people that had been there for 10 years <laughs> doing an undergraduate degree sounds like heaven yeah so i think i do think that um in any of the go8 universities and even even some of the other ones because i talked to some colleagues um around other universities in sydney um uh the expectations placed on academic staff for um, uh, research performance are extremely high. And I think one of the reasons is that, um, that the, it's, it's kind of a buyer's market if you're a university management. There, there are so many people who are so good, I mean, you know, um, coming out with PhDs and or, or wanting to move from other places. They've been out for a while. There's so, so much 
that that uh, there's opportunity there to kind of upgrade your department and every single one of your departments and every single staff member in your department. So that puts a lot of pressure on staff to perform and to perform at the top of their game and to keep performing at the top of their game. And that's tiring um, over year, year after year after year after year, right? You gotta keep um, delivering. And so I think burnout is pretty high among staff. And uh, I think that, um, what do you call it? It's just, uh, it's just sort of the emotional pressure. I'm trying to think of the, the word stress. Right? It's the word I want. Stress is pretty high. Um, even people who are doing really, really well um, don't necessarily have the time. And I also think they, you, you've got to appear to be enjoying that and, and enjoying the competitiveness and the culture and all of that, right? Because if you even show that you can't cope or can't handle it, so, so vulnerability and weakness, you can't show that as an academic staff member. You just can't. And I worry a lot sometimes for my younger colleagues because I think they must be undergoing the same kind of stresses that I felt, um, but they can't show it. They'd have to be very careful about choosing who they even talk to about stuff like that. Right? Is it so, you can't, yeah, go ahead. Is it you can't show vulnerability to students or your colleagues? Oh, no, I think you can show vulnerability to students. And, and in fact, I think it's, that works really well. Um, students actually kind of like sometimes saying in the classroom, seeing that you don't know the answer to the question or that you, you're not so fully prepared on every single topic that you can, you know, that you, that you run the show. Students love to get the, be the upper hand sometimes, right? And, um, and that's good. And so you can show that vulnerability with students. It's not only um, expected, but it, um, it's beneficial. But I don't think I don't think it's very easy to do so within the context of your of the institutional environment. Mm. Yeah, because as soon as you sort of admit, oh man, I my research isn't going so well. I don't know where, and I don't know what I'm going to do next. Right? As soon as you, as soon as something like that happens, wow! I think you got to feel insecure. Yeah, yeah, it, it is all quite sobering stuff. I imagine it must be incredibly stressful for a young academic without tenure to deal with that kind of stress and pressure, particularly in light of the uh, recent cuts or proposed cuts to the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences that have been very well publicised, really. Um, but th there was one thing that I was hoping to touch on, Rick, in terms of your time at UCID. It, it, the other day we were talking and you mentioned the importance of uh, making mistakes in learning, <laughs> that you're sort of an advocate of uh, making mistakes or perhaps uh, being comfortable with making mistakes in the classroom. And, you know, when you were saying that, it, it, it kind of it, it kind of reminded me of a live musician, you know, like, uh, unlike a studio recording, a live musician has to kind of be okay with mistakes. Like, do you think that kind of uh, comparison fits? Is that how you would characterize yourself? I do think it fits with that uh, because I also think, so as far as music goes, I love live music, and I think live music is far superior to studio recorded music, um, especially because most studio recordings attempt to get everything just exactly perfect, right? And it's really the, it's 
the space in which not everything is perfect. And it takes, it takes some of my favorite live takes, actually have places where the singers screw up the words, right? And they, but they make up for it later in the song, right? Um, because they go off into a space that's, um, which maybe they jam or they do something, you know, right? And that's, that's really different, unusual, never been done. And you take the good with the bad. And I think the classroom should be a space like that too. So this, this paper I wrote was called Accidents in Learning. And it got its start from an anecdote that's told about the very first philosopher, Thales. And he was uh, an astronomer type, right? And he was out one night um, looking up at the stars and he fell into a ditch um, and got himself all wet and everything. And, um, Plato tells the story about it and says there was a, a Thracian serving woman out and about at night and she saw this and she said, Thales, um, how will you ever um, learn anything if you're so busy looking up at the heavens that you can't see what's at your feet? And he went on to, to um, have a philosophy that was very much concerned about water. I don't know if you know that about Thales, but... Uh, uh, he thought that water was the source and fundamental principle of all things, right? So he, he learned from the woman who observed the, his mistake. He learned from his mistake. And if we don't make mistakes, then I don't see how we're going to learn. We learn by failing. Uh, Beckett says, a, a quote I love of Samuel Beckett says, uh, ever tried, ever failed, never mind, fail harder, fail better. <laughs> I love that. And I think that we need, we need a little bit of that in the classroom. And so my, my take on mistakes is that they contribute to learning in a big way. Mistakes and failures, they're really an important part of it. Yeah, well, well I'm stunned that Samuel Beckett said that quote, because it's wildly optimistic for perhaps the world's most pessimistic playwright. Uh, no, but I, I agree wholeheartedly with the stuff about mistakes and live music, of course. Um, I am super excited, though, to I begin to talk about your paper, uh, Cultivation and Harmony, Plato and Confucius. One thing that I would like to begin with is how surprisingly both philosophers think about harmony as a kind of series of concentric circles, or at least that's how I interpreted your paper. So on the sort of innermost circle, if you'd like, there's the harmony of the individual, then you go a bit wider and it's harmony of the family, then society, then the universe more broadly. So that idea of uh, levels of harmony or concentric circles, could you tease that out for us? Well, that's that idea of the circles, uh, concentric circles, or however you want to describe them, the wheels within wheels, if you want, right, um, is a good way of describing um, levels of harmony. And both Plato and Confucius are, are sort of big believers in um, the way in which there are harmonies within harmonies. Um, if you want, use a, use a Bach metaphor here. Life is a fugue, right? And there are, there's a real weave or texture of all of the different harmonies within them. And um, some of the greater harmonies are the harmonies of nature as a whole, right? And the harmony of the cosmos. And for both of these guys, they're ancient thinkers, uh, fourth, third century BCE, 
Um, they are um, thinking of the cosmos as a whole in terms of its orderly motions, the sun, the moon, the stars, right? That exhibits a kind of a harmony. They don't have an idea really of a chaotic universe that, in, that we might have now if we think about the whole universe extruded from the Big Bang and just being all over the place. They see a thing that's where the motions are harmonious and regular and orderly and repeat each other. So that's the greatest level of harmony. That's kind of cosmic or natural harmony. And then within that, there are a level of harmony that you find in human society. So human organization. And within that, you find the harmony of a family. And within that, you find the harmony of an individual person. So there are these, there are several different levels of harmonies and what you want is, is not to have discord between those different levels. And both, of the, both philosophers, Plato and Confucius were highly interested in how to discover and promote um, harmony between different levels. Yeah, I mean, what was also interesting about Plato and Confucius is that they were naturalists about harmony. Like it's not just, we need to promote harmony. It's there's a harmony out there and we just need to match it in our lives. And it's not only out there, but it's in here too, right? And there is a match, there is a match of the out there and the in here. How is there a match? Well, I'll tell you, give you an analogy. I'll tell you about my cauliflower. Last week I've got a cauliflower, it's a, a green cauliflower. And it has, it doesn't, it's not shaped like the white cauliflower. It's, I don't know if you, I, sh I should send you a picture of it. I took a photo and it looks like one of those um, fractals images. So there's the pattern that's in it repeats itself over and over and over and over down to the smallest scale. And I think that's the, that's this thing about the harmony between the outer and the inner is that there's a way in which since the whole universe is actually made up of all the same stuff, what we have inside that makes us able to thrive and function as an organism is also the same stuff that's out there in the universe that makes it able to thrive and function as a being. So um, that's what I mean. Like there's, there's a match between those things. There's nothing... Mm. Remember, Monty Python used to say, and now for something completely different. And I always used to laugh at that because for us philosophers, there's nothing that's completely different. Nothing is completely different. If, you, if it's intelligible at all, if it's sensible at all, it can't be completely different, not so alien. It's just rather different. And but seeing how it is the same is that's where um, that's where the harmony comes in, mm. right? You know, and um, since so in some ways I think harmony is like that that famous and maybe cliched line from T. S. Eliot. It's like uh, coming to know the place where see the place come to the place where we began and see it for the first time, right? So. Um, no, maybe it's sort of exactly the opposite of, of that. It's like coming to a place that's completely unfamiliar to us and see it as the place where we began. It's like that, rather, right? 
say, oh, this is actually familiar to me. It looks completely unfamiliar, but it's familiar. It's home. Right. Right. I, well, Rick, I guess for me, what, what I'm trying to get across in my head is the relationship between these concentric circles, these concentric circles of harmony, or the harmony here and out there, and what Plato and Confucius have to say about music and a musical education. Could you try to relate those two ideas, or maybe begin to talk about what they mean by a musical education? Well, okay, so part of that is to understand your own culture, okay? Um, so music is understood in a very, very wide sense by Plato um, to include all of the arts. And if you think of an education in arts, what do we have about 40 departments or so within the, the Faculty of Arts? Um, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, it's always changing. Um, but that's, that's music in, the, in this large sense. It's not just uh, acoustic uh, music that we're talking about. Um, and that's the music of one's own culture, or it can, for us, unlike for Plato, but for us, it's multicultural. It's really international, and it involves trying to understand other cultures as well. So it's metacultural, I think, is a, is a better way to put it. Um, and for Confucius, uh, part of the early musical education for him also was to understand the poetry of his culture. And the poetry is particularly uh, naturalistic. It's, um, it's unlike uh, the Greek epic poetry, um, which was the story of legends and heroes of the past. There's a lot of the Chinese poetry, which is about nature, about, uh, um, about being a part of nature, about being sensitive to nature, observing the beauty of nature and the orderliness of nature. And in some, in some sense also, um, our own um, smallish place in nature, right? So nature is bigger than we are. Nature is more powerful than we are. And we have to understand our place in nature as, as regards that too, right? And both of them thought you really have to have to become immersed in all of this before you can play. I was talking about play and being musical. But the point isn't just to learn those things for historical reasons or for cultural reasons, um, but to learn that in, in order to give you a basis for a rich expression of life, a rich and unique expression of life, okay, in, in your person. So there's the individuality as opposed to the particularity, right? But each, and think about a musical performer in that way too, like you need to, you need to engage in all of those kinds of um, practices in order to be able to express yourself musically on an instrument or with your own voice. But that expression, once you grasp and understand all of those things, is unique, it's creative, it's your own, um, 
and it adds, it makes a, a contribution to the greater harmony. Okay. So th that's what I think both, both of them mean. And I think for both Plato and Confucius, it's really important that you, if you think about virtuosity, okay, um, in musical performance, we think of that as the person who's skilled to the to a certain ex, to such an extent. Sorry, I think that was my own um, outlook dinging. That's fine. Sorry, I'm going to quit that and come back. So I was talking about virtuosity. Plato and Confucius both think that. Um, the person who learns harmony and music becomes a virtuoso. And a virtuoso in music is a person who can play um, beyond the limits and express themselves in creative ways beyond the limits of their musical education. And that's what I was want really wanting to get across about both Plato and Confucius about um, the musicality of life. It's learning the ropes for the sake of a kind of virtuoso expression. So we've talked a lot about a musical education and how Confucius and Plato both think that is the best way for someone to promote harmony in the universe and promote harmony in their society. So to what extent does an arts degree offer that? Does an arts degree offer a musical education where people learn certain basic principles that they can then refine and reinterpret for themselves? Well, I think that's actually the very, at the very heart of what an arts degree is and, and the very essence and idea of an arts degree. It is, it is a musical degree. It is about developing one's thinking and expressivity and life in such a way that um, our capacity is enriched. Um, here's a really, really small example. Um, I, I find, I used to find that I would pause in, in the classroom um, because I was searching for the, for the right word. And I wouldn't let myself um, just go by a script and I wouldn't let myself um, jump too soon because of the time going by. I would just pause. Sometimes the pauses were long and people sitting there and staring at us, or even I might say, well, that's not the right word for it. And they'd start suggesting words. And I say, no, that's not the right word because I, but vocabulary is such an important part of expression and taking the time not just to use IDK or you know other kinds of throw-off LOL and stuff, lol stuff like that, right? Um, to develop your vocabulary, mind you, I think IDK can be used in the right way in the right place. But to develop that in such a way that you that you can express fine-grained ideas, and to express fine-grained ideas, you have to have them, and you have to know what. It is what those ideas are that you have. And arts is all about showing you the, the ideas, getting you to be able to parse them and see the distinction between you know, dejection and depression, um, uh, and then to be able to express those in a rich and wonderful way. And that I think is the kind of thing I'm talking about uh, in terms of play and music.
in an arts education. And it's so different from, you know, uh, paint by number kind of thing. And I really think uh, it's, this, is, this is the fundamental thing, not just for arts, but for, for tertiary education all the way. Um, ultimately, I think even disciplines like engineering and chemistry, and, right, are philosophical. There might be a lot that you've got to learn before you can get to that stage, but they are. And they, and they involve kind of coming to see things in a, in a unique way and to be able to express those things too. So that's why I love university. Um, and you, you got to go through the other stuff, high school and the rest to get there. And there's probably a bit of the that kind of musical learning that can happen even in high school, but university should be the place where this kind of expression is encouraged and flourishes. Right, right. Um, so, well, I guess, was this something then that you try to reflect or integrate into your teaching strategy again? I mean, when Plato and Confucius talk about a musical education, was this something that uh, you consciously thought about as well? Well, it's possible that um, even Plato and Confucius were more rigorous than, than I am about um, content of education. I, I, I probably am a little bit more, as a philosopher, a little bit more of a skeptic. And um, there's not too much content that I think I can bet the house on, right? So I think in general, um, what we need to do as philosophers is to is to try to understand as best as we can what you might call the lay of the land um, and then work out ourselves what we think of that so um, for me in the classroom um, the way of being musical was to have just a, a, a little bit it's a little bit like having um, a jazz performance and you have a very very um, light on score with uh, some chord designations and some ideas about how the different parts uh, are to come in and play. And then the way in which you, that actually gets developed is a bit of a jam each time, right? So you've got the basic things, there's always your take homes that you want uh, students to, to leave that lecture or that course with. Um, and you don't want to miss that, and you want to you want to hit those notes really well, um, but you want to play around with it enough that the learning is enjoyable, that it's insightful, that uh, in some ways it's even problematic. So if you think about some some um, you know, think of people like Charlie Parker or Coltrane or something like that. Uh, they, they don't make music that's really pleasant to listen to all the way throughout. It's problematic. It problematizes things. It makes things difficult at times. I think it's great when the classroom experience is like that too. Um, and then, but you come back around, there's resolution. I'm a big believer in resolution at the end. There are some, uh, some musical composers who... Uh, who played around with uh, music that doesn't resolve. Right. I'm, I'm a big believer in resolution. So I'll, I'll, I like this. <laughs> this is one way in which I'm really traditional. 
the performance has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's there, those things are pretty clearly defined. Right? But within that, there's a lot of play. And um, so, but I think that's consistent in a, in a very essential way with the kind of thing that Plato and Confucius promoted. And let, let me just say why. Um, Plato didn't write treatises because he didn't think you could just sort of tell people the um, true theories about the world, about epistemology, about ethics, whatever. He wrote dialogues which exhibited, oftentimes exhibited philosophers talking about these things, but exhibited particular people with, on particular occasions with particular discussions. And that's like a performance. Those dialogues are performative. Confucius is different, but Confucius, the analects of Confucius are also not treatises. They are, each one of them um, more um, pithy and memorable and provocative of, of thought. So I think both of them wrote in ways and committed their, um, their output in ways that um, go along with this idea that to be musical is to create your, your own piece as a result of your experiences with other pieces of music, right? I think the, both of them are musical. And I think the idea that I have about the, about the classroom is consistent. I think so anyway, with Plato and Confucius. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you, I guess you sort of like interpret it slightly differently in your own life compared to Confucius and Plato. Um, okay, but what do you think? Yeah, about, I, think that's, yeah. I think you're probably right there, yeah. Yeah. Although it's fortuitous to say so, I think that's an example of the very thing that I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, this is getting very meta. Um, yeah, but well, I, I guess for, to me, when you're talking about lecturing, it, it really, I guess, sounds like to me that you kind of have a set of principles or ideas, uh, but the real magic happens when you play around with them and you spin them off in different directions. So is can you recall a moment where you felt like you had really done that, like you had been a bit of a virtuoso and kind of nailed that in the classroom? Well, I never, I never caught enough of a sight of myself. Fortunately, I never had to look at videos of myself teaching. Um, so, uh, I don't think I ever caught enough of a sight of myself to sort of be able to say, oh, that was a virtuoso performance or that was, you know, that sort of thing. I just felt like very often It'd be an odd student feedback survey if they said Rick's a virtuoso at the lecture. Yeah, no, they didn't say that. They said things like, I I remember uh, one really got to me and said, lose the denim jacket look. (laughs) Okay, that was a long time ago, but it was about people who often used to make comments about fashion and and personal comments kind of get to you, especially the negative ones, right? Um, But I just know that I felt that very often with, I, I, I definitely committed. So there was one of my teachers, I absolutely loved him. His name was Paul Weiss. And he told me about teaching. He said, you have to always put yourself into your teaching. Doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's about Plato or Aristotle. You have to put the things you think 
into the, into your teaching. You have to work with them in your in your in the classroom, right? And I took him to heart because I thought he was a great teacher himself. Um, he had you know kind of a fire in his eyes and and delight in the things in in teaching. So I always tried to do that. And it didn't always come off, but I thought there were lots of times when it did. And it meant that I actually tried to put into practice this idea of playing like musically in the classroom. And I, 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 one things I remember very often at the break, you know, you've got like a two hour lecture and at the break, just hearing that buzz of people talking, you know, and where it's even kind of hard to bring them back to attention afterward. So I felt, oh, I know that I know this is good. I know this is going well. Um, and you know, so I I don't know what could describe what was peculiarly virtuoso about me. Um, somebody else would have to do that, but I felt like I know I know it happened, and I know it happened a lot, and I felt very very happy about that. You know, I ask, like, why do you think it was so important that you put your personality and your mind and soul into your lecturing? What about that made the lecture experience special? I think, uh, I generally, I don't like this word, but I think it's authenticity, right? I think it's that sort of way of being authentic. And it's, so it's not like, um, you know, like when I first started, I was so totally afraid to go into the classroom that I just wanted to give somebody else's lectures, anybody else's. <laughs> it's that hard um, and so if it was if it came to me already in a can that's what I really wanted to have um, but that's what it I think that's the way of being authentic and so then learning starts to become authentic and you set the example for students as well you see you put yourself on the line um, and they will do so too and mind you, I have to say, I did not always do that. Fear is a great equalizer <laughs> and in the classroom or anywhere else. Um, so it's not always the easiest thing in the world, but sometimes it happened. And I think quite a lot, it happened. Mm. It's a hard thing. Like, I mean, I watch some lectures and I think, God, I could do better than this. But I know if I was standing up there, I'd uh, probably bugger it up. It is. It's a really hard thing. And, and that's right. You do think that. Uh, <laughs> or maybe I'm just a narcissist. That's possible. <laughs> I remember as a student thinking that too. And I, and I, I, I think there, I can think of plenty of times where I was giving a lecture where I felt like at least some of the students in the classroom were thinking that about me. And, but I thought, okay, go ahead and think whatever you, you think what you want to think. I don't believe it that you could do better than this, right? And so ask me a hard question, you know, something like that. Um, because it's, it's usually not really the case. It might look like that, but it's usually not really the case. Mm. What, the worst thing though, is just that if you've ever had, I don't know if people still do it, but somebody who comes into the classroom and reads their lecture notes, right? That's the worst, that's the worst thing. Kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> 